Seeking mental health care can be overwhelming and even scary, but it doesn't have to be. I'm Dr. Josephine McNary, and I'm committed to making this process easier for you. Each week, my expert guest and I unravel a different form of therapeutic intervention in order to bring comfort and understanding and to help you get back to your true self. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mind Stories. Today, I'm pleased to have on as my guest, Thomas Peer. Tom is a licensed clinical social worker with 25 years of experience in psychosocial oncology, care of the dying, and psychotherapy and life transitions, loss, and grief. Today, I have him on to discuss the grief process, as well as the important work he does with people as he sees them through this important and natural process. We talk about the various forms of grief, as well as ambiguous grief, and how it relates to the current nature of grief during COVID times. Welcome, Tom. Hi, Tom. Today I have as my guest, Tom Pierre, who is a social worker who works with grief and loss. And I'm excited to have you on today. It's great to be here. Thanks for asking. Yeah. So, you know, I've wanted to do something about grief and loss for a long time. And I'm glad that I reached out to you because when I think of this topic, I think of you specifically in terms of treatment for this. I knew you for many years, way back when, when we worked together at the Sims Mann Center for Integrative Oncology. And you come to mind as an expert in this field because I always was impressed with the caring professionalism that you worked with patients and patients' families on this topic. So I'm excited to circle back to you and hear about your work that you're doing in private practice and beyond. And I hope we can cover almost everything in this short time we have together. Go for it. Yeah. Thanks for your kind words too. Yeah. So maybe we can just start off by saying, what is grief therapy? What is the general thought about the process and you know how you think about it? Those are big questions. Yeah, that's really important. One of the things that we're identified as mental health professionals, and often there's a problem focus in mental health. And what's unique to me about grief work is that you're working with a normal, natural, healthy reaction to loss. So Mm -hmm. we're not pathologizing, we're not calling it a disorder. Grief is a human experience. And everybody experiences grief at some point in their life. Some people, they experience grief many times in their lifetime. So my approach really is one of that people are going through a healthy reaction to loss. And the trajectory of that will depend on a lot of factors. The nature of the relationship, who is lost. If it's an elderly person and there's a sense of gratitude for a full life, that's very different from a loss of a child when life is cut short. How long grief will last the depth of it, what it will feel like will depend on the nature of the loss and often the context of the loss. So like right now, during these days of COVID, where there's a lot of losses or different kinds of losses, we'll talk about that. We're not just talking about death either, but grief related to other losses. And in our society, we're kind of set up with this don't cry message. Oh, no, no, it's, it's all going to be okay. Don't cry. And that's a real disservice to the grieving process. That grieving is often about, yes, please get into the cry. Let it go. Let it come out and allowing for that. And that has, for some reason, come naturally to me in my career. And I've appreciated the grace there is, the privilege there is in sitting with people during right. the process. Yeah. 
So one question that I want to ask you. So if grief is a natural process, then why would someone think about seeing a therapist during that time? Great question. One is because there's often that notion of don't cry or it'll be okay or closure will come with time, which one of my thoughts is that closure in terms of grief is really kind of BS because there's, I don't even strive for closure. And we'll talk about that as well, I hope. The other idea is that life is busy and that to take on busyness as an approach to dealing with grief is actually not a healthy thing often. It can push grief down the road. So there's a loss and then another loss and then somebody's dog dies and that's when they fall apart because they've held onto so much loss that having a space to create a safe container for this natural emotion to come out, having ideas about it being okay and how to facilitate it, questions to ask. And my approach, I believe that rather than closure, we're, we're seeking to establish a new relationship with a lost loved one. So there's questions to be asked and exploration around a changing identity. Who am I in the world without my loved one? But how can I also maintain a relationship with that person, even in their absence? How, yeah. how do you maintain a relationship with someone who's no longer here? Yeah. Michael White is the co-creator of narrative therapy. He wrote an article that's called Remembering, and the hyphen between re and member is the idea that lost loved one is absent. So there's a process that's necessary to feel the pain of loss, to grieve, to cry, but also then to know who they were and how they knew the person. So if you lose your spouse, part of your identity is gone. How you orient yourself in the world is missing. That person is absent. But how that person knew you is still an accessible identity. So who were you to to them? How did you care for them? If you were present with them during an illness, during the dying process, there's meaning in all of that. There's generativity, in fact. So we can talk about what that identity is and help people understand themselves in the world, how they're different, and yet how their identity remains somewhat the same. Yeah. So I think of the work that you do. I mean, I think there's different points at which you meet people in your therapy process. And so we're talking about the point where maybe someone comes to you after they've lost a loved one and they say, how do I do this? Maybe I've never done this before. How do I go through this process? And I I guess I think of you as someone who kind of leads them through that process that would be natural if they allowed themselves to do it. Right. And so you just kind of guide them forward in a process that feels healthy um, and appropriate, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's some experience and instinct in that to catch people where they are and identify what's going on for them at that particular time. Very often, if a person has been present during an illness, the world of that person and the dying person has kind of shrunk. And they become very focused on medical appointments and doctor visits and treatments and discussing medications. And at the end, they're talking about bed baths and physical aspects of care. And the world, it gets really small. And part of it is to process what happened. Tell me about the day that they died. Tell me about 
being present with them, what that was like, what was going on. And people can fill in the picture and be really in that moment and cry and laugh and tell stories. And then you start to expand out. And what was it like those last few days or the last week? What was it like those last two weeks? And expanding back out to maybe what was the illness like? But then there's a whole life that they've led pre-illness. So you can, mm-hmm. I just talked with someone this morning, she talked a lot about cancer. And at the end I said, and next week, I'd really like to know who you are without cancer in the picture. Who are you and your wife without the illness, before the illness? And so you're kind of re-expanding, reconstructing their memories and their life. And in that is, again, it's like stories, there's humor, there's those idiosyncrasies, remembering the secondary losses that happen. What did she do for you? Well, she always brought me my coffee in the morning and woke me up gently so I knew when to get out of bed. Or, you know, this was the last person I said goodnight to every night. And even can choke me up right now. I get a little emotional just acknowledging that, those tender moments. And that's part of moving through the reality of the loss and then beginning to feel the pain of the loss. And beyond that is then, okay, now what does life mean without that person here? And, you know, what is the future going to hold for me? It's, it's, a, it's a quick run through of the step-by-step process that I, I, I kind of hold in my mind when I work with people. So the way, in the capacity that I've known you and that I've worked with you with clients in the past was in the world of cancer. And oftentimes in that world, in a way, I saw you as someone that was not only preparing the individual, but also the families for an upcoming loss. And I always found that so kind of fascinating how you worked with people in terms of this anticipatory anxiety of something that will happen or a loss that will happen. Though all along, there's a loss every day of that kind of the the person's old life, right? And so that's one kind of loss. But also, I think it's important to think about there's a totally different type of loss with a sudden loss and not being able to prepare for it. So I'm wondering if you could kind of talk about those two different types and how you think about it and how you work with that. Yes. So acknowledging that the type of, if there is an illness, cancer might have a loss trajectory. Alzheimer's has a different kind of loss trajectory if there's dementia and the essence of the person is gone but their body is still here and physically caring for that person. Sudden losses have a very, the word that comes to mind is disorienting quality because there is no preparation. I referenced this with someone who lost a loved one suddenly. I used to live in New Mexico and you would orient yourself. The mountain is always to the east. And so if you wake up and you're confused about where you are, you look to the east and there's the mountain and you orient yourself. And when you have a spouse or a child, even you wake up and you orient your day or your life to that person. And the disorientation comes when that person is ripped out suddenly. That's an accident, something that maybe you think, oh, that could have been avoidable. There's a lot of what ifs, if we would have taken another route, if we had driven instead of ridden our bikes, examples like that. If it's something like a suicide, did we miss anything? Were there signs? Were there signs you look back on now and go, oh, we should have caught that. And then different things come up. Is there self-blame, some guilt? I didn't tend to my partner in the way that I needed to. 
and they died by suicide. And I should have done something different. There can be some blame in that. So different right. aspects of uh, right. emotional adjustment come up as a result of the type of loss. Right. And it almost seems as if with the sudden loss, there's a lot of questioning about, okay, this could have been avoidable and this could have been different. With more of kind of a chronic illness and then a loss, yes, maybe in the beginning of the diagnosis, there's thinking, okay, what could I have done differently to not have become ill with this cancer or other illness that will maybe eventually end my life or my my loved one's life. But there's maybe a coming to terms with it over time that is maybe a little different than the sudden loss. Mm-hmm. That to me has a lot to do with personality and perception of the world. You can have this person with a similar illness, a genetically inherited breast cancer. I've known people to feel anger and some kind of blame for the family lineage because it was inevitable that I got this illness or ovarian cancer very similarly. And another person can say, well, what can you do? It's, it's genetics. It's not like I could have, nobody passed that on to me on purpose. But so people can interpret the, the same illness in very different ways. There was another part of that question that was, oh, and, and like how, if it's, cancer that was related to something like smoking is there self-blame for the person who is diagnosed with cancer and was a smoker sometimes there's a person who is diagnosed with lung cancer and was never a smoker and so there's anger at like well, don't assume that i did smoke because that's not a good assumption and some people will the family will feel a lot of you know i told my dad forever to stop smoking and here we are and it's frustrating in that way um, so there's lots of different interpretations of how the illness might show up and why. Right. And, you know, I think this also gives me a memory of time I spent with you with one particular case that I will always remember, but a woman who was deal- had been dealing with cancer for years and years, and she was ready to go. But the family had a different in a sense, a different opinion. It didn't sit well with them. And so it's not only the personality of the individual, but of the family or close circle around them in terms of how they're coming to terms with the upcoming loss. Absolutely. And the more, you know, children there are in a family, the more opinions there might be too. It's one person saying, no, we have to keep fighting. We have to go for the next treatment. No, there's a new clinical trial. Let's try that. And the other end of the spectrum might be I know mom really well, and she just wants to focus on quality of life. And it's, it's okay. We're not quitting. It's time. And there can be divide that happens in a family like that. Yeah. Well, I know you had mentioned to me recently that you are kind of like to think about, and you've thought a little bit more about the concept of ambiguous loss. Can you tell me what that is? Mm -hmm. Sure. I'd be happy to. The field of Grief and loss has its own identity with those two words. And sometimes grief, loss, and bereavement are included in that, the process of grieving. But the types of losses, an ambiguous loss might be one where it's not exactly clear that the loss has happened or is happening. So I gave the example of someone with Alzheimer's. The essence of the person is gone. They have no recollection of who's around them. They need 24-hour care but their physical body is still here. So there's a lot of caregiver strain and difficulty, which might mean there's eventually a a time of relief in the loss. Mm -hmm. They might need to acknowledge 
this was really hard and it's okay. And then still have the sadness that comes with the loss. I will interject. Oftentimes there's a bit of guilt that goes along with that mm-hmm. feeling or that thought, sure. right? Sure. Well, in asking the questions, you said, you know, what do you do? And asking questions like, did you feel any relief? And people that, you know, like, well, yeah, but I can't acknowledge that. Well, here you can acknowledge that and I can support mm-hmm. that and it's okay. Even if there's a traumatic experience, if a parent was an abuser to a child, it's such a complicated thing to say they're relieved. This person who did, did me wrong has died and that's a huge relief. And yet it's also very complicated because that's the person who gave me life. It's just not that. That's another example of ambiguous loss in the, in the after sense. Who did I lose? The perpetrator or my father? It's not always that clear. Sometimes the ambiguous loss is a soldier who's gone off to war and has their loss to, you know, POW or a child who's been kidnapped. There's never quite 100% certainty. Where's their body? You know, are they actually gone? Their presence can be gone physical presence, but it seems like their presence is very much alive in the home. The hope that, you know, still putting up posters or hoping that someone will come home. Those were the ideas that I think initially started. Pauline Boss was the um, psychologist who, who initiated that theory. I just spoke to someone the other day who is struggling right now with politics in our country, and she identified the loss of idealism. And so it doesn't even have to be a person, but she was saying this country that I grew up in that I thought I knew, I'm really struggling with how things are working out and how divided we are. And I don't feel safe and I don't feel safe kind of like no matter who wins the election, I'm not sure that I'm going to feel safe again. And so I've lost my country was her or in the process of kind of losing her country. With COVID, people have lost their sense of the world as they knew it. I have a great office that I haven't used in eight months, whatever it is. And I go, will it be 18 months or will I never go back? You know, I, I asked that question. I've kind of lost the sense of, and it's not the kind of grief that is about death, but really kind of like, who am I in the world? How, like, how do I, mean, I don't, if I don't leave my house for five days, <laughs> it's kind of silly right. that that happens. But then, like, what have I lost in that process? The friends that I would run into, the colleagues I would talk to, get connected to and have lunch with, all that socialization. So it's not a direct, clear loss, but it's, there's so much grief in that. Right. And wrapped up in that is loss of, like you said, life as you know it, but uncertainty if it will ever get back to the way it actually was or the way you remember it. So thinking about someone you saw who talks about loss of identity of a country as they had known it, one question is, well, will it ever get back to the way I know it? Or is that completely gone, right? Mm-hmm. And will it look differently? And I think a lot, the, the buzzword of kind of new normal, what will a new normal look like? Will it look almost exactly the same as it was pre-COVID? Or will it be so different and you couldn't even imagine the way it's going to be? And that seems so ambiguous and unsettling in a way for people. Certainly. And then, you know, the other part of that is that there are some gains, So telemedicine is the way we're seeing clients in therapy, but the way doctors are seeing 
patients is going to be revolutionized. And that's just already out of the gates. There's no question about that. So in any kind of loss, there might also be some gains. So that is another piece of the work that probably comes later on in, in the process. Who is a person after, a year after their wife died or two years later? And how are they stronger? How are they more grounded or more resilient? What did they learn in the process? There's always some element of learning. And that sounds so mm-hmm. cheesy, but it's true. <laughs> it's just true. Yeah. Learning uh, who you are or becoming a stronger person, having some clarity about what matters. I won't waste my time doing X because I learned a lot about that. Yeah. Well, I was also thinking it's not a coincidence that I reached out to you during the time of COVID because I've been thinking a lot about loss and how COVID kind of shapes that, right? So I think about people who have lost loved ones during this time, either from COVID or just from other reasons why people would suddenly or not suddenly pass away. And I think about this inability to kind of grieve in ways that we once thought of as a given, right? Inability to attend funerals, doing it over Zoom in a way that just feels like it's not containing for somebody who is going through such a difficult time. So I was just really curious about that and how you work with people given the inability to kind of draw on the usual comforts during that time. There's so much in that and there's it's so current that there's such wisdom in the traditions that allow and facilitate the grieving process. So working with anyone with a religious identity a funeral, sitting Shiva, the year of mourning in the Jewish traditions, they all have markers and and there's a wisdom in that. And it's very disrupted with how limited we are with COVID. So if you can't be at the bedside, you can't have an open funeral like an Irish Catholic family might have, that it takes away so much of that. And so that's, I feel like I can't fully answer that because it's an emerging field um, mm-hmm. and how I just saw an ad for some kind of internet memorial service that there's an emerging field of how to facilitate grief on the internet. And it's, that's all very much emerging. I think there's also, again, some gains in that because family who might not have attended a funeral are able to attend a funeral, albeit virtual they might participate in ways that they wouldn't have otherwise been connected. So it's a a mixed bag. And then I think I wanted to say too, when loss happens in ways that are confusing and might even be stigmatized, that there can be a disenfranchisement of the loss. There's a blame that can happen. Like we should have known better. Maybe I'll take it out of the COVID realm. Back in the day when a lot of men were dying from AIDS in the early days of the AIDS crisis, there was heavy stigma and heavy blame. Like, you should have known better. We know how not to get infected. And that takes away the reality, ultimately, that a person is losing their life. It would also mean they lose friends, they lose the family that might have supported them through that process. And it can make a challenging situation, all that much more challenging. That's a very difficult layer of what I think the COVID crisis. You have the means, the possibility of protecting yourself, 
and is there blame to be laid? And that's unfair. Mm-hmm. Bottom line is if a person dies, grief is a normal, natural reaction. So it is just to be facilitated. And one other notion about the disenfranchised loss, it's actually how I came to the field initially when I was a student social work intern and I worked at a, a Catholic church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. And a person came in and this was my first intake, first time. And I asked what was going on. And she said, well, my ex-husband died. And she started to cry. And I just asked some basic questions. And then she said, the hardest thing is I found out, or I, I think I might've asked, you know, how did you find out? And she said, the hardest thing is my best friend called me and said, ha ha, the sucker's dead. Mm-hmm. And I was so conflicted because here is this person who is the father of my children and I spent 20 years with and was my best friend for a long time. And my female best friend was calling me to kind of laugh at the fact that he was dead. And the place for her to grieve was taken away from her. So when we have a loss that's not socially sanctioned, that's not publicly supported in some way, it makes grieving that loss all the more difficult. Something like a pet loss where you can say, oh, well, you can get another cat. And that's not responding to the grief. Um, Right. And that case, actually, I wanted to just ask you a few more questions about it, but this idea that maybe this woman hadn't seen this man in years and years and years, but what she's grieving is the loss of a memory of and a meaning of who this person was to her 20 years ago. Yeah, you do. You think about everything that goes with that person and that life. It's not that that person who's maybe 60 years old is dead. It's that the whole life that he led before that and everything that meant to this woman as complicated as it was, Mm -hmm. is gone. And then her two daughters who also love their father and how to support them, protect them from any pejorative notion like that. Yeah, I think that's actually, I'm really glad you brought that up because it's almost as if people somehow quantify the amount of grief that you should be experiencing, right? So this idea of, well, you know, your dad passed away, and but you didn't talk to him for 30 years. So why are you upset? Yeah. That kind of thing, right? Yeah. And yeah. I mean, it, it, it does do a disservice to the process itself. Yeah, I know this well, and I even do this to myself. A good friend, colleague of mine died earlier in the year. And I find myself questioning, why am I still thinking about her? Why does it still bring me to tears? And I'm disenfranchising my own loss. Mm -hmm. It's kind of just part of what I think we expect is there's a time limit on it. And if there's anything I've learned in this work is that grief doesn't have a time limit. What I started Mm -hmm. with was saying, you know, I don't believe in closure. My grandmother was a dear heart to me and she died in 2002 And I can still bring her smell back and her memory back and all of the things that she meant to me very easily. And I don't want to give that up. I want to keep Mm -hmm. that forever. And I want to even tell my kids about her and the soup that we made together. So there's the, Mm -hmm. the legacy part of, I think, integrating a loss, like an important person. That's what I love about this work. Can it bring meaning? Can it bring integration in a way that people can feel stronger and better able to to live their life after the loss if we do Mm -hmm. the work 
Right. Yeah. This thought of, okay, if you have lost somebody and you notice the sense of sadness or grief come up, really that's important to notice and say, that person made an impact in my life. Mm -hmm. And so it's just a way, you know, like if you want to simplify it to kind of its basic form, it's a way to basically remember the role that that person played on who you are now and your your life experience overall, right? And so it it allows you to continue to remember and have kind of insight and understanding about you in the world too. And I offer this suggestion. We do this all the time with celebrities. You know, where were you when John F. Kennedy was shot this year losing Kobe Bryant? such a loss for the city of Los Angeles, such a loss in particular for black men in Los Angeles who grew up Mm -hmm. enthralled with Kobe, that they can acknowledge the deep imprint on their lives that we all can, that he left. So why wouldn't we acknowledge that with anyone we knew, even people Mm -hmm. where we had complicated, difficult relationships or pets? I still miss my cat who died three years ago. And I have stopped judging myself about that. uh, He was an important character in my life. You know what? I just saw that there is a pet loss support group in Los Angeles that I saw. And I thought, oh, that seems like like a good group to to have around. That is where the field of the disenfranchised loss started was with Ken Doka, who, who lost a pet and couldn't find the support that he needed. Mm-hmm. As we um, started something and came up with this whole theory. So the other question I wanted to ask about is if there is a family where there's young children and a loss, say, of a parent or a grandparent, how would you approach that with people? Yeah. There's a big challenge in that when, especially if there's children of different ages. So you have adult people in the family who have the loss, but then children who might understand it on the teenage level or at a 10-year-old level or even younger, just in the concrete phase of mommy's gone, helping them to understand what the loss is. So a parent not only needs to tend to their own grief, but the grief of a teenager, a 10-year-old, and a five-year-old, there's a major challenge in that. Plus, life goes on. So there's this dual process happening, the dual process theory of grieving that the loss-oriented part, which is the sadness, the coming to terms and supporting your children in doing that, and also the restoration-oriented piece, which is still going to school, making meals every day, which maybe the dad or maybe the mom never did, or doing the laundry, whatever those things are, that suddenly one parent is the sole provider. And that's a particular challenge for families. There's a great resource that I'll provide in that in the show notes for widowed parents. Oh, really? Oh, good. Okay. What does it do? How does it help? <laughs> well, the, the, there was a cancer center in, I think it's in North Carolina, and a couple psychologists there had a group of patients who were going through kind of a similar process in a group, and a few of them died at the same time. These young moms and their surviving husbands were suddenly in this role of dual caregivers and grieving at the same time. So they formed a group. They thought it would be like this six-week psychoeducational group. And it lasted for six years, I think. And they wrote a book. And it's wow. an interesting um, outcome. I, I have a 
fantasy of my own that I, that I would start a group like that because I think that's a, an important population of people to support is young parents who are suddenly solo parenting. Yeah, I, I believe it. I mean, with any group, it's just kind of, there's comfort in knowing that other people are walking the same path, right? And experiencing the same struggles that you're experiencing, especially with, with that kind of loss. I can imagine it could be so, so helpful. So. All right. Well, thank you, Tom, for being here. I appreciate you giving us a summary of the complicated and important work that you do. And I'll make sure we have all the resources that are available that you find important on the episode description. So thanks for being here, Tom. Great. Thank you very much. All right. Bye. This has been Mind Stories. With remote appointments in California and offices in downtown Los Angeles, Santa Monica, Hermosa Beach, Marina Del Rey, and Echo Park, Health Psychiatry specializes in medication management, mood and anxiety disorders, alternative therapies, women's mental health, and more to help you get back to your true self. Visit us at calpsychiatry.com. Thank you for listening to Mind Stories, and don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe.